in any fundraising strategy. You'll be directed straight to the case for support as being important, but I think it's also worth saying you don't always get it right straight away. It was in his blood and that's where the passion comes and where the belief in what we're trying to do came from. That was worth its weight in gold. He influenced others, he got people on board, he gave up in front and was very open about his gift, which was really, really important. And actually one of the most important things about him is he injected fun. He was, he, he was really well liked, he was respected, and he was a lot of fun. There were a lot of jokes, there was a lot of laughter. It was brilliant because people wanted to come to meetings. Hello and welcome to the Fundraising Bright Spots podcast. This is episode 144. My name's Rob Woods and this is the podcast for fundraisers who want insights, examples and maybe a little dose of encouragement to help you raise more money and really enjoy your job. This time we're looking at capital campaigns and appeals and in particular how to make them work when the charity you work for is fairly small. I've noticed that there are quite a few well-documented case studies for successful major appeals run by large and famous charities. And in truth, I've found that most of the principles that help make a special appeal work are effective whatever the size of your charity. But given how many smaller charities there are who embark on them, I thought it would be helpful on this podcast to hear from someone who's done one for a smaller organisation, so we can hear her experience of how the strategy worked in practice and what the important elements were that contributed to that success. So I was delighted to get the chance to interview Steph Pisharodi, who worked for many years as Head of Development for St Albans Cathedral. As you'll hear, she was there from the start to the finish of their special campaign to raise funds for an important new heritage and community project. I really enjoyed hearing Steph's reflections on this successful appeal. So whether or not you're embarking on your own campaign, I hope you find it as helpful as I did. Hi, Steph. How are you? Hi, Rob. I'm good. Good to be here. Yeah, well, thank you so much for making time. You're a very busy fundraiser and I really appreciate you making time to do this chat for our podcast. So you and I met a long time ago. We both worked for a large, well-known charity. And at the time, it was deep in an important appeal for money to pay for an important project. But uh, we stayed in touch over the years I know you've worked for other sizes of charity over the years and I really appreciated you making time today to talk about if you're a smaller organisation and you've got to raise money for a special project or a special campaign, some things you've learned in a recent job you had. So that's to set it up. Top line, where do you work now and where did you work then? Thanks Rob. So I currently work for an air ambulance charity But the project we were talking about when we spoke recently was in a previous role where I was working for my local cathedral, which is St Albans Cathedral in Hertfordshire. And I had gone there back in 2011 just to cover a maternity, an interim maternity role that I I got sucked in. It It was a great place to work and it had a very, very exciting project. And the privilege that I had is I joined at the point at which they were just getting to grips with going ahead with this fundraising appeal and a campaign for a, a major heritage project to really transform the organisation for the future, to protect it for the future, to share its heritage. And I had the privilege of then staying. I can say, you know, that the 
campaign was a success, I had the privilege of saying right to the very end to when the doors opened on that project in 2019. And we actually celebrated with all of the donors and all of the stakeholders. So that, that's a really lovely position to be in as a fundraiser to see something right through from beginning to end. So congratulations. And how wonderful that you were there from start to finish. Just in terms of the top line information, what was the target? And broadly, I would like our listeners to understand that though a cathedral sounds like a large organisation, in charity terms, as in fundraising terms, you were a very small team. A lot of the time it was you and an assistant broadly, as, as I understand it. So, yes, so a cathedral is huge, of course, but it's uh, in term, fundraising terms, in charity terms, we were small and, uh, and, and actually relatively recent, you know, fundraising team in at the cathedral was a relatively recent thing. The appeal, the project in total was just short of eight million pounds, but actually over four million of that was through a lottery bid to the National Lottery Heritage Fund. So what we had to achieve was a three million pound in effect match funding so as i joined we were just in the process of starting to put together the first hlf bid which is a job in itself when that was successful in 2014 we were given a two-year window to raise the, the remaining funds so that when we went in with our second round bid as it was at that point in 2016 we had to have all the money on the table or commitment to all the money so that gave us a very very strict format for a campaign of this type yeah and another thing that occurs to me is although your fundraising was in the context of that kind of organization a cathedral congregation and the volunteers and other people you're working with are in the context of a cathedral. I don't want our listeners to think that the things you did that helped to raise money would only work in the context of a, of a church or a faith organisation. That context is part of the story. But when we spoke the other day, I think that lots of the principles and ideas you shared about some things that worked to help you get the thing over the line and raise the money so that the, this important project could happen really most of them are translatable to any kind of special fundraising project or campaign, be it, you know, a hospice raising £450,000 for a new hydrotherapy unit or whatever else it might be that our listener might need to raise extra funds for. Most of the ideas and principles and tactics really are applicable in any kind of charity. Absolutely. This was not, It's. I think it's probably important to point out it wasn't predominantly a faith-based project it was about heritage it was about the business plan for the cathedral needing to bring in more visitors for the future and it was about protecting its heritage and the campaign was a very focused campaign the model that we talked about is very much a target that many other similar sized charities may face at some point and I think you mentioned the different stakeholders in any context in any charity. There are so many stakeholders and that was one of the key things we had to explore. Where were our stakeholders? Of course, the congregation and the immediate communities were really important, but there are quite a lot of communities beyond that and stakeholders beyond that, like in every charity that you really have to identify. That makes sense. And that will be a key thing I want to get your ideas about and, and find out how you made the relationships with those stakeholders and important groups work to inspire them to want to contribute and do their bit but maybe the starting point I think lots of fundraisers if we mentioned 
special campaign or appeal, many of them would initially realise an important element is the case for support. Did people have different views on it? Lots of fundraising textbooks will have information about the writing of a case for support. I'm curious, from this journey you went on, uh, how did that go? What did you learn? What are some interesting things for our listeners to bear in mind if they need to write and prepare an effective case for support for their special fundraising project? Yeah, I think this was the single first point. And I think, like you say, it's no surprise in any fundraising strategy, you'll be directed straight to the case for support as being important. But I think it's also worth saying you don't always get it right straight away. When I first joined, we had we had a title for the appeal. We kind of knew what we wanted to do. But actually, it didn't inspire excitement. It didn't motivate support. It kind of was a bit says what it does on the tin. We needed quite a bit of input. Internally, we had to get everyone together and behind this. But we also got some external input. And I don't necessarily mean we, we paid. We actually had, were lucky to get some pro bono help. But just trying to work through a process to come up with actually a title, a kind of a tagline, something that actually said what it was. And actually what that for us was coming down to was what was actually unique about what we were trying to do. And we were trying to tell the story of the cathedral in a way that brought in many more people. That was the absolute bottom line of what we were trying to do. And actually what was our absolute unique point, it was the saying, St Alban, he's, he's the, the first ever saying of Britain. So for us, there was quite a clear thing there and that needed to be upfront and central uh, and not shied away from. So we managed to do quite a bit of work around that and come up with a real headline, which then looked at the different elements of our project, which were around learning, which were around heritage and around welcome. And then we could bring all those out at the same time as we just talked, there were so many stakeholders and communities that were engaged. We were about getting them involved. So, for example, we didn't want the congregation to feel excluded from this story, but we didn't want the local community of our city to be excluded from this story. We didn't want the civic communities. So actually, it took time to get this right. And I think that's something you can't just sit with a blank piece of paper. It has to be, it has to involve lots of people. We went out and met lots of people, spoke to lots of people, commissioned other people to do that for us as well and brought all that together. It was really important to looking professional from the beginning as well, but just to taking everybody with us. Mm. I see a risk if you get everyone's opinion... There's a chance there could be 10 right answers and therefore incredibly difficult to actually make a decision and just go for this bold key idea. Is there anything you've learned in hindsight about how you made a decision and saw saw the wood for the trees, saw the pattern for what the heart of the message should be? That's a really good observation. Like I mentioned, we had some pro bono support, someone who could facilitate this process for us, which was brilliant. I think it also slightly brings me on to another point, which is about leadership. And I'll we'll probably talk quite a lot more about that, but about the people who really take ownership of your campaign. And one of those key people is your internal leadership team. Now, in the context of a cathedral, that's the dean, uh, but it might be a CEO, it might be a chair or a managing director, whatever, whatever organisation yours is. And actually, it had to come back to them because actually the vision has to sit at the top of an organisation. So having in our case, the dean involved in this process, and in a sense with final say, was actually really, really important. And yes, it's not going to be the story everyone wants all the time, but actually being quite transparent and open about that process is is all you can do, I think, and actually work for us in the end, and got him on board very much from that very early phase. And did I hear then there was a realisation that that St Alban overarching story was headline, and then... Mm. 
the more you looked at it and your facilitator helped get the ideas, there just were two, three, four other chunks as to, in practice, what the money would pay for to help the community and the church? Absolutely. So there were three key strands. There was about our welcome, about our heritage and about our learning. And what's really important as a fundraiser there is that all was how we then brought the rest of the project together. But as a fundraiser, that's immediately where you start to think, well, who does that appeal to and who can we get on board to support? How can we focus our attention in different ways and present this in different ways under that overarching banner, which was really, really useful. So then, Steph, another key element of one of these campaigns is the leadership inside the organisation and also externally senior volunteers who are stepping up to want to make this fundraising success happen. How did you go about that in your case and anything interesting you found about what caused it to work? Yeah, this is something I've reflected on quite a lot because I think if I was to say single handedly what it led to our success I would say it was the leadership model and the the group who took ownership of this project that that helped get us over the line so I think the, the the first thing to say is we had a plan you know you start with your strategy of course you do and if I look back at that strategy now on paper it isn't quite what we ended up delivering but what we delivered worked so actually that's a real important learning that I took away from this whole project We went in with the intention of setting up a a fundraising board, fundraising committee, and that is what we did. And and that was really, really useful. And these were external senior volunteers, uh, people who were interested in in us and wanted to make this project succeed. But, you know, I think boards like this can either work or they don't work. So actually, it was really, really important to get this right. On paper, we were looking at titles, who would we bring in as a chair of that? Because the chair is is obviously quite an important starting point for how you formulate that board. It didn't work like that. And that's what we thought by the book. But actually what we did was much better because actually what we got was someone who was already very much involved with us. And it was a gentleman who had already worked on one of our other trusts at the cathedral. But more importantly, actually, as a family had been involved with the cathedral forever, you know, it, it was in his blood. And that's where the passion comes and where the belief in what we're trying to do came from. That was worth its weight in gold. So he was a business leader, had some really, really key strengths. I've said already, he was already engaged with us, which took us leaps ahead in how that worked. He was really keen and willing to commit his time and energy. He decided there was a certain day a week he would give to us and that would be ours to use. He influenced others, he got people on board, he gave up in front and was very open about his gift, which was really, really important. And actually one of the most important things about him is he injected fun. He was he he was really well liked, he was respected, and he was a lot of fun. There were a lot of jokes, there was a lot of laughter. It was brilliant because people wanted to come to meetings. So getting him on board was the absolute coup, I think, to where we got to. Um, and it wasn't what we'd written down on paper right at the beginning, but actually it was much better. The second thing that was a surprise was, I think, again, if you say, oh, we're going to put together a fundraising committee, most people will say, go for about, I don't know, 10, 12 people, you know, it's manageable, don't don't oversize it. We ended up with 22, which, again, sounded ridiculous, and we could barely fit in our boardroom to sit around the table. But actually, it really worked because, you know, you don't turn people away who want to support you, and actually they wanted to be part of that inner circle. It allowed us to have certain people on there because we were quite flexible with that size. We could have representation on there of other groups that we wanted to bring with us. So 
there were various internal bodies that we wanted to make sure felt represented at high level so it was really important to have them there and again it was a really early win in terms of the campaign was to go with what worked for that particular chair and for those particular people in addition to that I remember the remember vividly the conversation with the chair saying you know we were saying well you know it would be good if we could have regular meetings and we were thinking once a month once every two months and he was like yes we'll do it every two weeks kind of like crikey that sounds like a lot to manage and don't get me wrong it was at times a lot to manage but coupled with the really big board and what they wanted to do I think in his mind he was he could be in the cathedral once every two weeks so get everyone else there too and what happened was then you have this morphing group because not everyone could commit to every two weeks but it meant everyone did get there pretty regularly and it was a really really regular touch point I'm not necessarily saying that is best for everybody I guess my learning from all of this is that what was written on paper at the beginning what we thought would work for our leadership and our taking this project forward and giving ownership to this and sort of governance was nothing like what what we ended up with but it worked for our context hi it's rob and i wanted to let you know about our two flagship courses designed to help you grow high value fundraising results that's the major gifts mastery program and the corporate mastery program which are starting again from mid-april 2024 Rather than have me tell you how they work, I thought it'd be most useful if you could hear directly from someone who's done one of these courses. So here is a short clip from Sam Harford, who's a philanthropy officer at the British Red Cross. If you want to improve your major donor approaches and raise more money for your charity, I would really, really recommend Rob's major donor mastery course. It was absolutely fantastic for me and built my confidence so much and I really began to change my mindset and start focusing on cultivating for major donor relationships rather than major donor gifts. Since joining the programme I've raised over £600,000 in pledges and donations so I'm really grateful for all of the support and guidance from Rob. If you'd like to find out more about these programmes or our in-house training days or any of our other training go to brightspotfundraising.co.uk forward slash services. For now, let's get back to my conversation with Steph. Uh, two things that really stood out to me there. One is a quality in the chair that may not necessarily be on other people's uh, upfront checklist when you're, you're thinking about who could be the chair of our campaign. Likeability and ability to make the meetings fun. I'm guessing that was extremely important that caused more people to come to more of these meetings than they would have done and yeah. that makes all the difference then for people getting involved making decisions having a new idea having it making a new commitment to to, to go and action something like yeah. something that affects people more likely to show up rather than less likely to show up is yeah. actually very important and therefore yeah. that quality in the chair should not be underestimated and maybe if they're low on that but very high in certain other qualities Mm -hmm. that's another thing but all things being equal do not ignore the ability of someone to to actually be a good leader effectively that others want yeah. to show up for yeah uh, and indeed work work hard for the other one that really leaps out at me is frequency and yeah. I, I, you see this pattern lots of places if you only meet once every three months then mm. it's ever for any important project fundraising or other but if yeah. you're able to f increase that to once a month or once every two weeks or in the build up to an important event, 
either every week or, or every day, quick check-ins. Project managers know that that's how you keep the tempo up and keep the, uh, the concentration, the focus and the action taking up. And so I think this is a fascinating thing. Probably, you said to me the other day, this is one of the major factors why you know, things kept happening and sooner or later results kept coming in. And I'll be blunt, there were times when it was hard maintaining those meetings every two weeks because there's a certain amount of work that goes into the background of them. As you know, you know, meetings don't just happen. The, the joy of the fundraiser role is you have to make it all look seamless on top and you're paddling away underneath, just getting papers together, making sure actions have happened, actions that are with you, actions with other people. So there were, still, uh, there were the odd moments when we were cursing the regularity of those meetings, but actually it, it was the touch point. It was the keeping everything mo moving. It's the momentum. It was taking everybody with us um, and that mattered and it, and it did mean more actions happened. I, I think I mentioned earlier, we, we did have quite a structured time frame on this project. We knew we had a deadline because that was imposed by, I mean, as most, most campaigns have a deadline, but this one, we knew we had to meet if we were to unlock that lottery funding. So actually it was, it was always time limited. It was always, you know, this is the commitment. We need you to be coming regularly to meetings. I think the other thing about having them two weekly, actually, that did play to your favour as well. Not everyone can make them every two weeks. Of course they can't. But actually, then you'll try and make the next one. So you might be making them once a month. So it, as opposed to if you're only having them every three months and you miss one or even two months or one month, it, you're kind of suddenly you're way behind. So it sounds like there was lots of activity and it was a really important strand of this, working with people who could afford to give more and attracting them in to want to find out more via these events and then seeking follow-up conversations and coffees uh, to really listen to them and see how they wanted to be involved. But with any of these projects, there the usually are several different types of people, several different, quote, markets or segments. I presume that was true for you. Could you talk to us top line about that and maybe a, an example of how you worked with one of them? Absolutely. Yes. So I guess the information events were kind of the core tool towards our major giving sort of segment, but we, we'd identified lots of other areas. So, of course, we were applying to trusts and foundations. We were working with some corporates, although that was quite a small area for us. Um, we were looking at uh, very specific audiences like uh, our congregation and how we kept them involved and then gave them some ownership and other organisations like a friends organisation of the cathedral. So there were some really specific areas that needed quite some specific work. One that might be interesting to explore beyond more here was our local community. I mean, the cathedral is very much part of our city and it was really important that we gave people the opportunity to to get involved with what we were doing and to support it in in their way um so we came up with a, a sort of mini campaign with our campaign which was positioned towards the end of this of the two-year program when we when this of the end was in sight and we did an idea called Auburn's Angels. And these were uh, wooden angels that were hanging in within the cathedral very carefully within our very, very highly protected arches of the cathedral where people could have their name and even a message inscribed. And there were different values, but you were looking at sort of a, a, a donation point of around between 25 and 150 pounds, that kind of anything between there. So it was a way of everyone having a little involvement and it was very visual. It was very present. It was within the, anyone who came to the cathedral could see it, but also had had you know social media and various other opportunities, very photogenic. It does mean you're spending an inordinate amount of time. I mean, it raised sort of ten percent of the whole 
fundraise but probably took significantly more management time admin time tying bits of fishing wire onto little wooden angels um <laughs> writing in your best handwriting let's face it as a fundraiser you get to do all sorts of interesting things at times but it was important and looking back despite feeling a little overwhelming at times I think it was a very important part of what we did because it, it, it spoke to a different audience and it gave us a different profile for the campaign yeah that's really interesting isn't it um one can't ignore any important portion of one's audience uh and some the activity you need to do for some audiences can be harder work, more time consuming than others. I do really like some of the knock on effects of involving everybody and the visibility so that if anyone came to the cathedral, even if they were from a company, knew a trust or were themselves potentially a major donor, they would still be seeing this activity and hearing about those wooden angels. And one can't underestimate the visibility effect of this activity going on in some ways helping the other streams as well and the unifying of the whole group my son and i have just been watching the documentary about uh, wrexham football club and the just last night there was an episode where someone very proudly went and pointed to the brick on the side of the stadium that their dad had funded effectively donated maybe a relatively small amount in order to have his name on a brick 15 yeah. years ago uh, and I think part of that story was that he had now died and that was another reason why his daughter was so proud of that story that he got involved. He stood up to be counted and was part of Wrexham Football Club surviving. And so hard work though these things can be, um, we ignore them at our peril uh, yeah. if our mission is to, to bring the whole of a given community that might care about a topic with us. Yeah. I wondered yeah. if we could move on to a really important topic for any charity embarking on a campaign like this, where it just is true that you can't necessarily do all of the work yourself for uh, resource reasons, manpower reasons, um, but also expertise reasons. And I imagine you also d did get help from outside agencies or or a consultant or something and uh, how that went and, and any things you've learned over the years about getting those decisions right. Yeah, absolutely. We were incredibly lucky to have a great consultant supporting us. But I think we were also quite savvy to look at where we needed that support and to use it meaningfully. I mean, budgets are tight when you're fundraising in this way as well and you've got to be quite thoughtful as to what works its best with people who are actually at the organisation and represent the organisation and what you can bring in externally that will actually amplify your input and, and support you because we can't be experts at everything of course we're not none of us are there was a couple of ways that it was brilliant having consultancy support I remember one point when we were just so flat out and our project line for our trust and foundation approaches was was there and we just didn't have the time to get to it so having buying in, in effect some resource to help fund some of that to help do some of the research into that and to help us put together some basic materials for that meant we could keep that ticking over at a point when my time was absolutely dominated by for example these events and the fundraising 
committee and that was really helpful to know you could do that. The other thing that actually was really impactful was bringing in expert voices. So early on, I've talked quite a lot about Finjins uh, in committee and how valuable they were. Upskilling them and giving them the confidence to, to come to events, to speak, to, to talk to contacts was really, really important. There was a great guy we were working with who came in and did some like training sessions with our volunteers. And being blunt, there wasn't a lot he was saying that I couldn't have said but it made all the difference that it was this guy saying it and it was an external voice and this voice of experience and and it was brilliant and it really helped because it built them up so it was really sort of thinking about what you can bring in externally that can help you that you can't deliver yourself Um, so that's a really interesting tactic was that a training session to help those voices who were then going out to give talks or to have fundraising conversations to have fundraising conversations really it was you know, various members of our committee had were quite well connected and it's sort of said, well, we know this person and that person. It was giving them the confidence of how to have a conversation without losing your friends, I guess. You know, you know the whole, you can go and talk to someone about your passion in this without it sounding like you're going with a begging bowl. Again, it's very easy to find, you know, you can find the information on paper. I could have said some of it, but actually having an external expert come in and talk to them gave them that sense of actually, no, we, we can do this. And they did a bit of role play and stuff like that. So that was really, really effective. And also worked with our internal leadership team as well, which is, you know, brilliant. It's about confidence building. The other element I should probably mention, I think about consultancy like that, is also having a sounding board. As a fundraiser, when you work in a really small team, I mean, you mentioned right at the beginning, I've worked at a number of different organisations of all different sizes. And sometimes you're in a massive fundraising department and other times it's just you. And actually, it, it you know, sometimes you just need someone to say, am I, am I going mad here? Is this the right approach? Is there something different I can be doing? And actually, that's something that I think is really valuable that you can, you know, having that kind of support. Steph, one question that occurred to me is where some of the larger gifts came from, and maybe they came from different places, different relationships. But I I wonder if you remember back to some of the things that really made a difference and what you learned from those. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's always interesting, isn't it? You start a a campaign with a gift table, and then at the end, when you when you review the campaign, the gift, how the gift table looks alongside it, and of course it looks very very different. I think if I was to think about some of the gifts that are the most memorable, the obvious one is our biggest personal gift, which is a very major six figure gift, which came in from an individual who was in contact of our chair, but interestingly hadn't been seen as a prospect early on at all, and I think what if I'm honest, the reason that gift came about was because of all the activity we were doing and the fact that our chair was just talking about his passion for what he was doing. And then this family, as it sort of came from a family, got involved and wanted to know more and very quickly made a decision to support us based on the fact that the chair was so passionate about what he was doing. But I think it's interesting to note you don't always identify even where there are people that are known to your contact. They won't always be identified early on. So that was a really big success story for us. Maybe the flip side to that is there were some that were more predictable that you were expecting to see because they were long-standing members of this community who'd been supportive in the past and who cared about this topic. Um, Yes, and I think 
there are always some gifts that you're assuming will come in and there's always a danger as well about some assuming that there are still surprises there was another was we were very lucky in in this context because obviously there's a there was a big congregation and community around the cathedral who again i remember vividly getting a call one day from a member of the community i didn't know them well but they'd been hearing about it and so went have a cup of tea again someone who was just giving regularly at a very low level it's, it's as, as as we know as fundraisers these are the people who are already committed and actually turned into a very nice five-figure gift because they really wanted to get behind it and be part of it from what they'd heard so being available to have those cups of tea and to 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 to, to follow up on those conversations and make people feel like they can be part of it whatever whatever area they're coming from they weren't linked into the fundraising committee at all but they were very much linked into the organization is really important we must always make time for just thinking about other memorable gifts is another member of our committee who we knew was well connected and influential and we and was generous supporting themselves also was particularly connected through trust and foundation so had a particular couple of contacts friends who were on boards at really significant level grant giving foundations we actually had a couple of grants basically that I did barely did a thing for because they came through that conversation that contact one of them in particular that was closing out we got a really really significant gift so um yeah you never quite know where their contacts can lead you and, and making sure I think go full circle back to that how often we were having conversations and how often we were interrogating different links and different contacts that's why we managed to find some of these connections and, and, and capitalise on them because we were we were really involved closely with the committee over that period. Mm. Maybe the last obvious point to make here, Steph, is about through all the ups and downs and the many tough days of a project like this, just the ability to keep faith, you know, in this sense I mean it with a, a small f, to, to find a way to keep going and knowing whether there's downs and whether there's ups if you're doing the right kinds of things and the strategy fundamentally is sound to keep telling these stories and trying to doing these events and trying to have cups of tea with people who might care and you're equipping those volunteers to be able to talk about the need and the opportunity if you keep plugging away doing broadly the right things sooner or later you do get more luck and as given one of the examples you said just there that was really valuable that you wouldn't necessarily have predicted would come. And so the ability to, to somehow hold your nerve and keep going seems to be like one of the most important lessons, though eh, in a way cliched, doesn't make mm. it any less important. Absolutely. There is that, isn't there? There's that whole element, I think, of making your own luck and just keeping being resilient. I think being a fundraiser, and this isn't just based on this campaign, it's based on whatever else I've done it's a lot of resilience there's a lot of just having to keep coming back to well this is the plan this is what we're trying to achieve and if you keep on doing it you're gonna get the conversations with the right people but it's hard isn't it we all know that it can be really hard and that's why it's lovely to look back I look back very fondly on this campaign there was a lot of success but there were a lot of dark days too when things didn't feel like they were gonna quite get there and we were we had a really strict time frame because I think look at a campaign, the campaign is it should be time limited, that is its purpose. And you can only have the energy and the energy of your campaign board and, 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 and volunteers and leadership at that intensity for a certain amount of time. So that's important. And we were, I guess, 
lucky to have a framework that was fit there by the lottery process. Uh, it didn't always feel lucky. It felt like, in, you know, it felt like a train hurtling towards you at times, but actually that's important because it gives you that element of urgency. It prioritizes what you're doing and it gives a real framework for planning around how you're gonna fit all these different elements in. So making that feel positive and feel like a, a structure to, to getting you there that you've just got to keep keep going and being resilient with all the things you know that are right to do. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing. The truth is, even when you get a wonderful, truly impressive win to make a, a campaign like this succeed, that just always will have been plenty of downs and, as you say, some dark days. But that's why I'm ever so grateful, Steph, that you've made time to talk to us because some of our listeners may well be uh, just coming out of or just ending into one of those down days or one of those dark days uh, and that's why it's so valuable to hear stories like this to remind us in spite of those if we keep plugging away doing the right things or just slightly changing things and they keep going come back the next day and try again it is easier to keep going and have faith knowing that these things do work out success is possible if you keep uh, plugging away so i'm really grateful for you to coming in and making time to share these stories and these ideas that you gained from this process i look forward to catching up with you very very soon but for now steph thank you so much thank you, thank you. so there you go i hope you enjoyed hearing steph's reflections on this campaign if so and you think it would help other fundraisers out there, please do share it on with your team and with other charities. Thank you so much for your help. And if you'd like to find out more about our two long-standing programmes, that's the Major Gifts Mastery Programme or the Corporate Mastery Programme, which have now helped hundreds and hundreds of fundraisers to grow fundraising income over the last 10 years. Or if you're interested in some bespoke in-house training for your team, then check out the information on our website, which is brightspotfundraising.co.uk forward slash services finally you may have already subscribed to this podcast but if not please do hit that button now in the last couple of weeks we've been making several exciting new episodes to help you solve a bunch of important recurring fundraising challenges and i really don't want you to miss out on those in the next few weeks do let us know what you think about the show we're both on linkedin and on twitter or x i am at woods underscore rob thank you so much for listening and supporting our show I wish you the very best of luck with your fundraising and I can't wait to share more Bright Spot stories with you very soon.